1: Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program. We're studying Chapter 11 in the book titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Enlightenment. This chapter is all about meditation and developing your practice. This is where I share the four types of meditations that are taught to move the mind to enlightenment. There's two primary forms of meditation that every student who's interested in getting to enlightenment, we need to learn, develop and practice and ultimately master in order to get to enlightenment itself. And then there's two specialized meditations that not everybody is going to need to necessarily learn and understand, but they're there for you in the situation that you might need them. So today, I'm going to be going through all four of these types of meditations, helping you to understand what they are, how to use them, and what you're needing to accomplish when you're actually doing these meditations. Because it's one thing to understand how to actually do a meditation, but it's another thing to understand why are you doing that meditation and what is it that you're looking to accomplish while you're actually doing that meditation. So because it's so important to understand those things, I devoted an entire chapter to understanding meditation in developing your practice. And now is an opportunity for you to learn that same content in person in an online class and ask any questions that you might have related to developing your practice. Because there are certain things in the chapter that I would have shared that I explained in the actual chapter, and then there are certain things that I explain in class, and these things do have some overlap, but there are certain things in the chapter that I explain that aren't explained in the class, and there are certain things in the class that aren't explained in the book. So by having the ability to learn and read chapter 11 in the book, as well as learning in class, this will fully inform your practice. And then you can ask questions in class, you can ask questions in the Facebook group, You can send private messages and you can even schedule personal guidance sessions as you're developing your practice because you're going to need to gradually develop your practice. So let's go ahead and look at what I had to share with you today in terms of learning chapter 11 from this book. So the first thing to do in terms of sharing with you about meditation is to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. So one of the things that I do in each one of these chapters is I oftentimes will share definitions at the very beginning of a chapter. Because of the universal truth of impermanence, the way that you might understand meditation and the way that I'm teaching meditation are oftentimes very different. There can be some similarities, but they're oftentimes very different. So I'm never interested in assuming that the reader of the book or a student who's in my class has the same understanding of words that I use. So therefore, at the beginning of a chapter and oftentimes at the beginning of a class, I will just define what it is that I'm actually teaching. So here at the beginning of this chapter and at the beginning of our class, I'd like to just define what I mean when I use the word meditation. Meditation is a technique to actively train the mind during dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions to eliminate and or cultivate various qualities of mind in the positions of seated, lying, standing or walking. It's an active, dedicated, purposeful training session. You're eliminating either unwholesome qualities in the mind, like craving and anger, or other unwholesome qualities of mind and you're cultivating certain wholesome qualities like mindfulness or concentration, things like this, loving kindness or compassion. These are all wholesome qualities that might be cultivated as part of your meditation practice. So it's a dedicated, purposeful, independent training session and you're either going to be using the seated lying standing or walking positions these are the four positions that the buddha taught because you can't permanently use just one position the body is going to change situations are going to change you're going to need one position versus another and i'll share with you how i use those different positions to help you develop your practice it's important to understand that meditation is not exercising walking the dog, gardening, driving, or some of these other things. While these things may be beneficial for your life and really helpful in certain situations, they're not meditation. Because if I was describing meditation and you thought that, okay, yes, I need to meditate and exercising, walking the dog, gardening, driving, these things are meditation. And you never actually did this active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to eliminate or cultivate various qualities of mind, then you're not gonna actually be able to move the mind to enlightenment. If what you did was just exercise, walk the dog, garden driving etc you need this other activity that is dedicated independent and purposeful to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities and i'm going to be sharing with you guys Those details as we progress today. So, you might decide to do things like exercising, walking the dog, gardening, driving, or other things like this, but you shouldn't consider those meditation. When you're walking the dog, you're walking the dog and you're outside looking at the trees, you're enjoying the sunshine, you're breathing in the fresh air, you're maybe conversating with your neighbors and things like this, and you're having a wonderful time while you're doing that. Or if you're exercising, you're exercising the physical body and focused on improving. Improving the health of the physical body and there are benefits to the mind and all of these different activities that you might be involved in but it's not this dedicated active purposeful training session you're gardening or you're driving that's the activity that you're doing as you develop your meditation practice it's important to have a meditation teacher everyone's going to need a teacher in order to learn and progress to enlightenment and Having a teacher is very, very helpful, very, very important. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment and develop your practice without a teacher. If you think about everything and anything that you've ever truly done and became very proficient at in your life, you've had a teacher, whether it was reading, writing, speaking, uh, whether it was just learning how to put on your shoes, learning how to get dressed, learning how to brush your teeth. If you learned dance or if you learned computers or if you learned any other activity, you had a teacher to help you with that. So awakening the mind to enlightenment, you're going to need a teacher because there are certain things that you're going to encounter along the way in your journey to enlightenment and practicing meditation that you're going to need to reach out and ask for support and ask for help hope there's going to be certain things that you're experiencing and you're not quite sure if it's normal or not and you're going to need to reach out to somebody and say hey this is what i'm experiencing is this something that i should be experiencing is this normal is this the way that i should be meditating and reaching out to a teacher and if all you hear from your teacher is yep that's completely normal keep going that can help build your confidence and having a teacher and a relationship with someone that you can reach out to and know that you can get help is very beneficial there's a student a few students actually but one particular student that i remember and keep in mind because of this individual contacting me after they had tried to do meditation on their own for about two years by just watching youtube videos and when they were watching these youtube videos over the period of two years They didn't realize it, but their mind was slowly degrading more and more. It wasn't improving, it was actually degrading. They didn't have anybody to reach out to and get help. This person was a practicing physician, they were a doctor. And ultimately, they got to a point where their mind was in such a degraded condition, they could no longer see patients, they were highly depressed, their personal and professional relationships were falling apart. They developed what we might call OCD, where they have repetitive thoughts over and over and over again and they eventually got in touch with me and were seeking help and guidance and is very challenging to help somebody in that situation. Had they just known early on that they were gonna need a teacher and to ensure that they had a teacher as they were developing their practice, they could have avoided all of that because in the first couple of months or first couple of weeks as they started experiencing difficulties, they could have reached out to somebody and got help rather than go two years without trying to receive help and then once they did actually reach out to someone for help their condition of their mind was so degraded there's so much difficulty in trying to help that person to actually improve in terms of the work that they have to do because their mind is so obsessed now and has such repetitive thoughts that they just ask the same question over and over and over again 30 40 50 times even though the answer has been provided to them and they've been assisted in how to develop their practice. Their mind is having a lot of difficulties processing that guidance. So it's important to be sure that you always have a teacher and someone that you can reach out to. Not that you have to constantly be in touch with that person, but just somebody that you know that you can reach out to and get guidance as you need that. There's these four positions that the Buddha shared to help us in meditation, seated, lying, standing, and walking. I use these different positions for different reasons and at different times, and I'll share that with you today. But remember, it's learn, reflect, and practice so that you can see the truth for yourself. So I will teach you so that you can learn what these positions are and how to actually use them in terms of the way that I use them. But then you should reflect on that, and then you should practice and see what works best for you. Rather than just believing what I share is the truth, instead, learn what I'm sharing, understand why and how I use these different positions, and then practice for yourself and see what works best for you in various situations. So for example, the seated position, this is kind of my go-to position. This is the one that I use most frequently because it's readily accessible. You can sit in a chair, you can sit on the floor. This morning here in the hotel room, I just sat on the edge of the bed meditating. You can pretty much sit just about anywhere. Seated is really helpful. This is where people will typically learn in the seated position. And it's kind of like the primary go-to position that most people will tend to use. But sometimes when you're in the seated position, you might actually have difficulties. You might feel aches and pains in the body. You might start falling asleep or dozing off. You might. Have an overactive mind, and the last thing you're thinking about is sitting down somewhere and being still and actually meditating. So that's where these other positions can come in to help you. So, lying position is where you just lie flat on the floor or on a bed or something like this, and this can be really helpful for you. I've used it in situations where I've had back pain in the seated position or hip pain that I couldn't adjust the body and and resolve. So I just laid down flat on the floor and I was able to actually continue to meditate. Because what you do with the mind between seated and lying is exactly the same. It's just you're changing the position of the body to get it comfortable so that you're not feeling pain, for example. I've also used lying position in a situation where I had been injured. This physical body was injured in a motorbike accident. I was hooked up to an IV. There was no way for me to even sit because the leg had been pretty much crushed by a motorbike. So I was lying in a hospital bed and I was able to still meditate, even with the AV hooked up and even with the leg fairly injured. So you can use lying position in all of those situations. You can even use it as your go-to position if you like that. The one thing to consider, though, is that in the lying position, the mind has a tendency to fall asleep. So you need to make sure you're attentive and alert and active in your meditation, because remember, it's an active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. So if you're regularly dozing off, there's ways to address that, which we're going to talk about today. But just be aware that in the lying position, there's a tendency for the mind to fall asleep. Standing position can help you with that as well as walking. So if you're noticing either in the seated or lying positions that the mind's tending to doze off and fall asleep, you might use the standing position where you just stand up with your arms along your sides, or maybe you clasp the wrists in front of you or clasp the wrists behind you. It's not about doing it exactly the same way all the time or exactly the same as other people, but by just standing up, you can keep the mind attentive and alert and active during your meditation session. Also if you're having difficulties with pain, either seated or lying, you can do standing position as a way to address any discomfort in the physical body. I've also used standing position when I've been waiting in line somewhere or I've been waiting at a bus stop or something like this. These weren't my dedicated, purposeful training sessions in terms of two to three sessions for 30 minutes or longer, but if I just needed kind of a three-minute, five-minute, ten-minute little top-up meditation outside of my regular practice of two to three meditations a day, I might do a little three-minute, five-minute, ten-minute meditation here or there as I'm standing and waiting for something. And then there's walking meditation. I've used this when the body was uncomfortable in any of these other positions and I'd rather do walking. I also used to use this when the mind was very overactive and the last thing I was thinking about was sitting, lying, or standing in one spot and actually meditating. The mind wasn't interested in that at all. There was too much overactivity, maybe even some anxiety in there. So I did walking meditation in order to be active while I was doing the meditation and then after I did the walking meditation, I might switch to a seated or lying or standing because what you're doing with the mind is similar it's just you're changing the position of the body so i might do walking for 10 15 20 minutes and then switch to seated or I might have been seated for five or 10 minutes realizing the mind was too overactive and I would switch to walking. So you can do it that way. You can also just do walking as a standalone meditation for 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it is you would like to meditate. So you can use these different positions as you need to. And what I just share with you is how I choose to use these positions, but you will need to work with these different positions at different times and see in what situations do these various positions work for you in the book chapter 11 i explain each one of these positions in detail and how to use them and when you might choose to use them and then i just provided that for you here as well so in terms of these basics of meditation let me just pause here and see what questions you guys might have before we move into some deeper understanding of the various meditations that you're going to need to progress on this path to enlightenment the way that you ask questions is put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. The moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly.
2: Yes, sir. Um, the question came to the mind while you were talking about the different positions of meditation. If the mind tends to, like um, as you said, fall asleep, if one has an overactive mind, Could lying position be used to then bring the mind to a calmer state and then switch position to either seated, standing, or walking?
1: Yes, you can. Because if the mind is uncomfortable seated in the seated position or it's uncomfortable in the lying position, then it means it needs to get comfortable in the seated or lying position because the mind is discontent when it's being asked to be in just one position. But there are situations where it's kind of better to kind of do some walking where you're actively using the body and then switch to a seated or lying, where just going right into seated or lying with an overactive mind, the mind might be so resistant to that position that it just wants to run or fight you. That's typically what the mind does when you're first starting out your meditation practice. It usually wants to either run or fight. It doesn't usually want to actually meditate. The mind is kind of like this wild animal that wants to run around the forest, and when the wild animal trainer walks into the forest, all the animals run and scatter. That's what your mind kind of does, When you're like, okay, I would like to meditate, your mind's like, nah, be on Facebook and kind of scroll through the newsfeed a little bit. Ah, let's watch some more TV. Ah, let's go have some fun. Let me call my friend. You know, there's always going to be something else the mind typically will want to do when you're like, ah, let's meditate. And then if you give in to that, then that's where the discipline and the complacency. Aren't there, or you know, your mind might be complacent, there's no discipline there. So, as you're first getting started, you need to build in that discipline, eradicate complacency, realize that you're training this wild animal, and you're that wild animal trainer that needs to come in and kind of decide what's best in any given situation. In some situations, you might choose to walk first and then switch to seated, or you might choose to. Just do walking in other situations where the mind's kind of teetering, and you're like, Oh, maybe I can do some seated or lying here. You might try to do that, so there's not a one size fits all. And this is where you have to practice and see what's working best for you in any given situation, and then not cling to any particular position or hold on to it and have the freedom to change as you need to as your practice develops. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
2: Um. And then Lindsay asks, for walking, could or should we have a destination, perhaps walk in circles? I have not yet tried walking meditation, but I feel it would help me with my overactive mind.
1: Yeah, so I teach it as walking in a counterclockwise circle direction. I have a video on our YouTube channel where I taught this. It's about a 12 or 15 minute video you can go to our YouTube channel, Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, and then search for walking meditation, and you'll see the video that I teach there. And I break it down piece by piece and show you how to do the walking meditation. It's not a destination, it's that dedicated, active, purposeful training session. You can do it inside, you can do it outdoors, you know, it's best to do it kind of in a controlled environment as you're first getting started so that there's not a bunch of motorbikes whizzing past. There's not tourists walking on the sidewalk and things like this. But ultimately, you'll be able to get to the situation where you're so focused and so concentrated in your walking meditation you could really do it anywhere in a park or on a sidewalk where there's people walking and all these different things but initially you would like to learn kind of in a more controlled environment and walk in a counterclockwise direction it's a really slowed down walk and there's a part where you put your foot flat and then you transfer the weight you put your foot flat and then you transfer the weight and you'll see that in the video that i describe how to do that
2: Thank you sir you're welcome uh jan has her hand raised let's go to her
3: thank you miranda thank you teacher david um you mentioned some strategies we could use to work use the line position and not fall asleep the body's having some medical issues right now and um it's it's the problem trying to do lying meditation and and not fall asleep so i wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit and i have a sort of related question the the body's more (coughs) attentive and alert the mind's more alert in the morning Mm -hmm. um i wonder about meditating multiple times in the morning rather than spreading it out over the course of a day Mm -hmm.
1: In terms of time, frequency and duration of our meditation, what I recommend is two to three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. And that's what you need to build up to. Oftentimes when we first start, it's five minutes or 10 minutes session. Even for some people, it's one minute or two minutes. And that's where you're starting and that's fine, but ultimately you'd like to build that up to 30 minutes or more two or three times a day and it's usually best if you can spread that out over the course of the day because then you kind of get this consistency in your meditation whereas if you're just doing a lot of meditation in the morning then it might not be enough to kind of carry you through your day but you can see what works best for you in that situation it's kind of like drip 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 of an ivy drip you would like to kind of you know, address the mind in the morning, you know, you kind of have four to six hours and then you address it again in the middle of the day and then four to six hours and you address it again in the evening. And this will kind of keep the mind in the middle and being able to experience that peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy over this consistent period of time of the day. And you're knocking down the craving and anger throughout your day. And this will help you because there's not a whole lot that can go wrong in that four to six hour period. And anything that does happen in that period, you've got a meditation coming up right after that. So that's what I would recommend in terms of time, frequency, and duration. I have planned to talk about that, but we just talked about it here. So when we get to that point, I'll just kind of skip over that. And then in terms of uh, falling asleep, Uh, You'll notice this at different times, and I also had plans to talk about this later as well, and particularly early on, in the first three to six months, you might notice that the mind is very droggy because the mind hasn't necessarily been sleeping the best with all these pollutions of craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind there tends to be difficulty sleeping. Whereas like when we were children, we could fall asleep at the drop of a hat. And that was very easy for us to do because we didn't have all these worries. You know, there weren't all these difficulties and struggles that we encountered. We were just pretty much in the present moment. You know, am I eating now? Am I playing now? You know, am I going to school now? I'm putting on my shoes now. The mind was kind of functioning a bit more in the present moment. And it didn't have all these worries about the past or the future. But as we age and the mind takes on this and it gets more and more polluted as we age, then we have difficulties oftentimes falling asleep. So we might have gone for a period of time with not a very good quality sleep. So as we start meditating and we start getting rid of some of these pollutions of mind, our mind oftentimes functions more like a child's mind where it's really easy to fall asleep at the drop of a hat so you might find 10 minutes into the meditation or 15 minutes into the meditation you just get super tired so you have different options here is one you could just go to sleep and get some rest because that's what the body needs and that's what the mind needs another option would be if you're really interested in extending your meditation cycles and and ensure that you're actually getting uh, quality meditation, you could switch positions. So if you are noticing in the seated or lying position that you're falling asleep, then you could switch to a standing or walking. And this would extend your meditation period and ensure that you're getting your meditations. And then a third thing is, if you notice that your mind is more attentive at any particular time during the day, you could kind of plan your meditations around that time. But just know that, you know, your meditation is going to shift. It's going to change. It's not always going to be the same that you might observe that at certain points of the week or the month, you know, you have certain times where the mind's more attentive and you meditate during those times. And then as you age or as things change in your life, as responsibilities change, as as job responsibilities change, as maybe kids come in and out of your life, you may need to adjust. And By not having a very rigid meditation schedule where, okay, every morning at 8 a.m., every evening at this time, you know, if you don't have that, that's actually really helpful for you. Whereas if you just have these anchor points where you know kind of morning and evening... I'm going to be doing some meditation. And then perhaps in the middle of the day, you're going to try to carve out some time somewhere then as well. Then you'll be able to kind of ease into your meditation at different times without having a fixed schedule, which can be really helpful for you. And then you can take advantage of when the mind has energy and it's more active and you feel like, yes, there's some attentiveness there then you can take advantage of that. And then when it's more droggy and you feel like you need to rest and take a nap, you can do that and not feel like you've missed your meditation because you had it scheduled at a certain time. Instead, you can just know that you're doing two to three sessions per day, 30 minutes or more, and just kind of find times to do that throughout your day.
2: Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So let's move on to the next thing that I plan to share with you guys. So let's talk about starting and conducting your meditation session. Essentially what I like to share with you is the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. This is really helpful to understand as you're training the mind, because in order to get to the mind, you have to go through the body. So you have to go through the employee to get to the boss. So you would like the body to be comfortable, not luxurious and not painful. If the body was too luxurious, it's not gonna wanna take you to go see the boss. Or if the body was painful, if the employees were painful, they wouldn't be interested to take you to go see the boss. So you'd like it to be comfortable, not luxurious and not painful. And this way you can, go to train the mind. You can get access to the mind to train it really well when you have the body in a comfortable position. The second thing is the Buddha talks in his teachings about setting up mindfulness in front of you if you learn the words of the Buddha and what he describes in terms of meditation, which I devoted an entire book of this book series to excerpts and extracts of the Buddha's teachings related to meditation, you'll see that he shares about setting up mindfulness in front of you. Well, what mindfulness is, is it's awareness of mind having awareness of mind so what he teaches is developing this awareness of mind before you actually start meditating the understanding is is that if you came and you just plopped down into meditation and tried to actually start meditating you would find it very difficult to actually gain benefit of the meditation because you haven't really done the work to set up mindfulness or set up this awareness of mind Prior to meditating, you just plop down into meditation and started meditating. So, what the Buddha suggests and what I suggest as well is that you set up mindfulness, this awareness of mind, to help you ease into meditation and actually get the most benefit out of the meditation itself. The way that I do that is if I'm meditating in the morning, I will typically wake up, I will go use the restroom to clear out any organs. I will come into wherever I'm going to meditate. Uh, I will do chanting and other things to kind of ease the mind into meditation, developing this awareness of mind. And then right from the beginning of the meditation, there's benefit right from the beginning. Rather than five, 10 minutes into the meditation, this is where the benefit kicks in. Right away from the very beginning, you can start getting benefit because there's been this setting up of mindfulness before actually meditating. Some people like to do a little stretching of the body. Some people like to do some prayer, some other things like this. It's totally up to you. The Buddha didn't explain necessarily how to set up mindfulness in front of you before you actually meditate, or at least we don't have that in the original source teachings. He might have described it during his lifetime, but what we actually still have access to, we don't see anywhere in there that he explains what to actually do. But what I observed is that by making sure the body's comfortable, and by doing a little bit of chanting to ease the mind into meditation, this brings awareness of mind and awareness of breath prior to actually meditating. And then we talked about this time, or this frequency, and this schedule of meditation when Jan asked her question, is that there should be these two to three sessions per day of 30 minutes or more. And this would be very wise for you to set up a schedule like this. The Buddha actually meditated morning, midday, and evening. But it wasn't a fixed rigid schedule because he didn't have a watch, right? There weren't watches 2,500 years ago. There was just general idea of what time it was based on where the sun was or where the moon was. That's how they basically told time. They had a general idea of what time it was, but there wasn't this fixed, rigid time. So if somebody tells you that you have to meditate at 3.30 in the morning every day, or you have to meditate at 9 p.m. every day, the Buddha didn't do that because he didn't have an actual timepiece to keep track of time that closely. So if you have these anchor points of two to three times per day, and you generally work towards those, then that will be really helpful for you. If you're meditating prior to bed or prior to sleep, don't wait for the mind to be sleepy before you meditate. Because remember, it's an active, dedicated, purposeful training session. So you would like your mind to be attentive and alert during the meditation. So if you're waiting to get tired before you meditate in the evenings, your mind isn't going to be as attentive and alert and be able to do the work that you need to do in order to actually train the mind and awaken it. So if you're noticing 30 minutes prior or an hour prior, if you can start becoming aware of what's going on in the mind and the body prior to getting sleepy, and you can start meditating 30 minutes or an hour before the mind is sleepy, that would be ideal. If you're observing sleepiness during the meditation, as we talked, you can switch positions to either standing or walking position, or you can just get some sleep, you can get some rest. And you can also be attentive to what times of day you tend to be more attentive and alert. And that's going to shift and change. So if you have just finished your breakfast and you have a little bit of time and you realize the mind's pretty attentive, go ahead and get some meditation. Or in the middle of the day or in the evening, maybe you notice like, oh, wow, the mind seems pretty attentive. Let me get some meditation going here. Go ahead and do that. You don't have to have this set rigid schedule of when to meditate because... You're not going to be able to stick to that permanently anyway. So if you have a general idea of when you might meditate, that would be ideal because then you're not clinging or attached to any specific schedule. Because as soon as you put down in writing that you're going to meditate every morning at 8 a.m., You might be able to do that for a period of time, but it's not going to be permanent because of impermanence. And when you start missing that 8 a.m. schedule, you might experience some discontentedness if there's craving, desire, attachment there. But if you have this idea that I would generally like to meditate in the morning, in the middle of the day, and in the evening, and you just kind of gradually find times and be dedicated and determined to do that, then you can make sure that you're meditating when you need to meditate. As you're meditating, you might experience physical sensations during the meditation, whether it's actually itching of the body or you might notice if there's an insect around and starts crawling on your head or in your in your ear if you have a fly or a mosquito or something like this. These physical sensations of itching are very normal, particularly as you're getting started with your meditation. If you need to itch, just go ahead and itch. There's no requirement that the body stay perfectly still during your meditation if you need to shift or move in order to get the body more comfortable go ahead and do that if you have certain physical sensations where you need to itch you can go ahead and do that as well but what i would encourage you to do is if you notice that little bit of an itch in the body is try to go extended periods of time where you don't itch notice that those itches arise that they change and then they fade away So if you can go three to five seconds without itching, and then you've got to itch, okay, you went three to five seconds. Now next time, try to get to 10 or 15 seconds, and then 30 seconds, and then eventually, you'll get to the point where you can see that itch will arise, It will change and then it will slowly fade away because it's impermanent. But you've been able to maintain your focus on the breath the entire time. This is very helpful for the mind that you don't become reactive to what's going on around you. That you can maintain your focus and concentration and meditation even when there's a certain itch in the body. And then you'll get really good at this to the point where there could be a fly crawling around on your head or on your tip of your nose and these different things and if you're in a situation like that and you can maintain your focus then you can see the real power of the mind and how you can really control it that in those situations where you would want to just swat the fly or scratch your head or something like that you can maintain the focus and concentration this is very powerful for your meditation And then as you're meditating, you might observe these visual stimulations during meditation where you see colors of green or purple or yellow. You might see white or different images as you're meditating. As you see those things, you would like to just cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Just keep coming back to the breath. It's completely normal. There's nothing special or unique about you that these things are occurring. A lot of people experience this while you're meditating you're training the mind but there's physical changes that are happening to the brain You might actually even hear some of those physical changes occurring or feel them in the skull as the brain is adjusting. Even scientists have looked at this and they can see the physical changes that are occurring to the brain as people are developing their meditation practice. And the brain is very much involved with sight and being able to see things. What I suspect is that these various visual stimulations Are these different colors or the brain changing as the brains changing you might see these different colors and you might even see things that have happened in your past either in this life or previous lives these things are all normal and you would like to just cut that off let it go and come back to the breath this is how you would maintain your focus and concentration developing the mind so that you can now control it and have discipline over it what questions do you guys have on this
2: would it, sir? Would it be wise to set maybe like a reminder to meditate on a phone or a tablet? At least here in the U.S., we rely heavily on our phones. I know most people have their phone with them all the time, um, and not that they have to meditate at the time that that reminder goes off, but just to kind of put into the mind, oh, it's midday, I should meditate sometime around now.
1: Yeah, that can be helpful for you if that works for you is having that little bit of a reminder. There's no harm in that. But, you know, if your alarm goes off and you're in the middle of something and you're like, oh man, I wanna meditate, but I gotta do this business call, or I gotta write this email, or I've gotta you know, take care of my child. That's where the mind has craving or clinging or attachment, and it's producing this discontentedness. So if you set up the alarm or that alert, do it as what you're describing, where you know it's just kind of a little reminder that either now or sometime in the next hour or so, you would like to meditate then look at it that way rather than a fixed time of you've got to meditate at exactly this time. Because as you know, it's not going to be permanent that when that alarm goes off, you're going to immediately be able to meditate. So you've got to give yourself the space to realize like, all right, this is just a reminder that over the next couple of hours, I would like to meditate. And I'm putting this alarm in there just to kind of bring it to the surface of the mind so that I can remember it. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
2: Uh, Jen has her hand raised. Let's go to her for her question.
3: Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Teacher David, there's a friend who's meditated for many years and has been talking to me about their meditation practice. Um, I find this very confusing, so hopefully you can help me uh, understand better. This friend insists that during meditation, they no longer can hear things um, and that that's a signal of a good deep meditation. But I find that I always hear things. And so any guidance you could provide here, I would, I would much appreciate that.
1: Yeah, there's different aspects of that. You know, there are definitely times in your meditation where you get so deep in the meditation and you're focused so intensely on the breath, but yet there's this relaxed you know calmness in the mind but yet you're attentive and alert to the breath that you don't hear other things that are going on that is possible but then there's other times where you will be aware of what's going on around you but the mind is still focused on the breath because there's not just one permanent fixed thing that's going to occur in meditation and if we crave that permanence of blocking out all the sound and all you ever should focus on is the breath and that's the way it's absolutely got to happen then that's craving permanence and that doesn't exist so you can experience what your friend's talking about and you can also experience what you're talking about as well the important thing is is that you maintain the focus on the breath particularly for breathing mindfulness meditation and then there's other meditations as well depending on what you're focused on but with breathing mindfulness meditation you're focused on the breath and if you're still aware of what's going on around that's fine as long as you're maintaining the focus on the breath but if you get deeper and deeper into meditation and you observe that you can't hear what's going on and you're you're not aware of what's going on that's fine too but just don't crave it to be one way or the other and just know that different people will experience different things
3: Thank you, teacher David.
1: You're welcome.
2: It does not appear we have any other questions at this time, sir. All
1: right. So as I've shared with you guys in the past is that as I teach, I'm not interested in you believing anything that I share. I'm not interested in you believing anything that I write in books. Instead, it's learning, reflecting, and practicing to see the truth for yourself so that you can see what's actually working. Well, one of the ways that I ensure that you're not believing what I say is to share with you what the Buddha actually shared during his lifetime and learning the words of the Buddha and his discourses will help you see what it is that I'm teaching is connected to what he taught and then you shouldn't even believe what he taught either you should learn and practice and that's what's going to actually help you to acquire wisdom the Buddha explains this too during his teachings he says to come examine his teachings come investigate his teachings so I'm sharing the same thing here, but I like to share the words of the Buddha so you can see what I'm sharing is connected to what he's sharing. Because in this particular discourse, he's talking about something prior to this, but then eventually he gets into talking about the four types of meditations that he teaches. And then when you see the four types of meditation that I teach, you can see that it's directly connected to what the Buddha taught. So here in this discourse, he was talking about these five things that a student should develop in their practice. And then he says, okay, once those five things are developed, he says another four things should be developed. One, the perception of unattractiveness of the body should be developed to abandon lust. This is a meditation to help you eliminate central desire. Because one of the strongest central desires that humans have is the desire for sexual intercourse. And at some point in your practice, if you ultimately decide to get to enlightenment, you'll need to let go of sexual interaction and sexual intercourse. You may not be able to do that now, you may not be interested in doing that now, and that's completely fine. You can actually get to the first and second stage of enlightenment, enjoy a very wonderfully peaceful life, but you're still gonna have a bit of discontentedness around sex. I'm sure you've experienced where you've wanted sex and you couldn't get it for one reason or another, and the mind was discontent because of that craving for sexual intercourse. Well, ultimately, to move the mind from that second stage of enlightenment to the third and fourth stage, you would need to let go of the central desire. And the way that you do that is to work on eliminating all central desires. And one of the most significant ones is sexual intercourse, because so many of the senses are involved in sexual intercourse. And the way that you do that is through a meditation that I'm going to share with you that develops the unattractiveness of the body. This is how you de- develop and abandon the central desire to have sexual intercourse. The second meditation that the Buddha explains to develop is loving kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. This is that second poison or that fifth fetter that is a pollution of mind, that anger, hatred, ill will, that bitterness, that hostility, that aggression that comes oftentimes in our intentions, speech, and actions. So you need to abandon that in order to purify the mind and get to enlightenment. And it's loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life that will allow you to abandon the anger, the hatred, and the ill will. And you can see the Buddha's words here and in other places where he's describing to do that. The third meditation that he's talking about here is mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation should be developed to cut off thoughts. So you're never going to eliminate thoughts as long as this body and this mind are together and alive, there's going to be thoughts. The cutting off of thoughts is training the mind to easily let them go. So in daily life, if you're having unwholesome thoughts arise, you would like to be able to let those go and move on with your day. So you're not gonna be able to do that unless you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and developing the ability for the mind to easily let go. Or as the Buddha says, cut off thoughts. So this is why in breathing mindfulness meditation, you focus on the breath. And when the mind moves off the breath, you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath you're not trying to eliminate thoughts. Even an enlightened being is going to have thoughts during meditation and during daily life as well. But in the meditation, you're training the mind to easily let go so that then in daily life, you'll be able to easily let go of any unwholesome thoughts that arise. We'll talk about this some more as we progress today. And then the fourth one that he talks about here is he says, the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. One who perceives non-self eradicates the conceit I am, which is nibbana or enlightenment in this very life. So as long as there's not the understanding of impermanence, as long as the mind is craving permanence, then there's going to be this perception that this body and this mind is who you are as a person. The realization of non-self can't happen until you deeply understand impermanence and you realize that this physical body and this mind is not you. And then to eradicate conceits or arrogance or pride, judging, measuring, and comparing others, you need to also be able to let go of this conceit or this arrogance of I am. I am a Buddhist teacher. I am a American citizen. I live in Thailand. You know, I am a father. You know, all these I am, I am, I am, you need to Understand that you may do these things, but that's not who you are as a person. As long as you hold on to this I am, then there's the tendency for this arrogance or this ego to wrap around that and now project that into the world, thinking that that's who you are. So there's a way to eradicate this self or this conceit of I am where the mind is falsely believing that there is a self the mind is mistakenly understanding that this physical body or this mind is the self, but it's not. The physical body and the mind is impermanent. There is no permanent self, there is no self. So there's a meditation to help you be able to accomplish that. The four different types of meditations that I just described, remember meditation is a dedicated, purposeful, independent training session where you're either eliminating unwholesome qualities or you're cultivating wholesome qualities. So here, what I've done for you is I've now taken those four types of meditations that the Buddha shares and I'm showing you exactly what you're eliminating from the mind as an unwholesome quality and I'm showing you exactly what you're cultivating as a wholesome quality. This is the why of meditation. This is why you're actually doing it because you're trying to eliminate discontentedness where the mind is shaken up. It's unstable. It's uncalm. It's unsteady. You're trying to get to this awakened mental state where the mind Is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So you need to eradicate the pollutions of mind. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, the pollution that you're eradicating, the unwholesome quality that you're eliminating is craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is holding on, it's longing, it's yearning, it's chasing after the objects of its affection. It doesn't wanna focus on the breath. The mind wants to be over here and it wants to be over there and it wants to be over here. So when the mind's moving off the breath, you're cutting that off and letting it go and coming back to the breath. You're gaining this inner discipline of the mind, eradicating craving, desire, attachment. And you're cultivating mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. That when you're focused on the breath, the mind is aware it's on the breath. And when the mind is off the breath, the mind is aware it's off the breath and then you cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. So you're developing this awareness of mind in meditation, which then helps you in daily life, because in order to purify the mind, it's a full-time job, not just in meditation, but outside as well. So when you're walking down the street and you have that unwholesome thought arise, if you have mindfulness or awareness of mind, then you're aware that that unwholesome thought is there and you can cut it off and let it go while you're walking down the street. Or if you're having a certain wholesome thought as you're walking down the street, then the mind can be aware of that and you can support that, encourage that, don't allow it to fade. So in meditation, you're developing awareness of mind or mindfulness so that now the mind can then be aware of the unwholesome qualities and the wholesome qualities that are there so that you can eradicate and eliminate the unwholesome and arise the wholesome and support that. And then you're also developing concentration or singleness of mind in your meditation by focusing on the breath. By focusing on a single object like the breath, you're developing singleness of mind where you can just do one thing at a time with focus and clarity. And while you're doing that in meditation and you're exercising the mind in this way, then in daily life, you can use that focus and concentration to your benefit. Whether it's in personal or professional relationships or certain tasks or activities that you're doing in your personal or professional life, you can maintain focus and concentration, just doing one thing at a time. Not allowing the mind to rapidly cycle from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. This is where overactivity of the mind comes in. This is where you might feel like you lack attention or you lack patience, where you can't be patient, because the mind always wants to go, 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 go. That is because we've trained our mind to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing. But if you train your mind to have concentration or singleness of mind in meditation, focusing just on the breath, and then you carry that with you throughout your day, where you're only focused on one thing at a time, now more and more you're refining the mind to do that, Initially, it can be a struggle, it can be difficult. But then the mind gets so used to functioning that way it just always functions that way it's not possible for it to actually do more than one thing at a time and you'll find that you're more productive this way because when you're trying to do five six ten things at a time and you're rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing you're making all kinds of mistakes you're causing all kinds of difficulties that you have to circle back and clean up anyway you think that you're actually creating more progress more productivity in your life but you're actually creating more difficulties because you're not able to bring the full wisdom of these teachings to practice something like right intention or right speech or right action in a way that is clean and pure so that it doesn't produce any unwholesome results so as you are practicing meditation to develop mindfulness and concentration then you carry that with you in your daily life it's part of the full path and you'll need to practice that on a regular consistent basis loving-kindness meditation is to eliminate the anger hatred ill will and all the lesser versions like frustration irritation annoyance things like this the bitterness the hostility the aggression Because if the mind doesn't get the objects of its affection, it will oftentimes revert to this bitterness, this aggression, this hostility. And this is where we have this unskillful speech or actions or other conduct that then now pushes people away from us. So what you would like to do is eradicate this anger, hatred, ill will, and all those lesser versions, and you would cultivate or arise loving kindness for all beings. Doing this in meditation, yes, but then carrying that with you in daily life where now as you're outside interacting with people in your personal professional relationships that you have this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. You have this active goodwill or this loving kindness towards all beings. And now through your intentions, your speech, and your actions, you're functioning in a way that is very loving and very kind. And now you can be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. And by you putting out that through your intention, speech, and actions over time, that's what will come back to you. But as long as we're putting out anger, hatred, ill will, bitterness, aggression, hostility, that's what's going to come back to us. So the way that we clean up our mind and we clean up our life is by transforming our own mind by doing loving kindness meditation as part of our overall meditation practice. So these two types of meditations are needed by everyone who's on the path to enlightenment and is looking to improve the condition of their mind, eradicating craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three poisons that the mind is plagued with and polluted with that is keeping it trapped in the unenlightened state, and you're transforming that with generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. and these two meditations, breathing mindfulness meditation is addressing the craving. Loving kindness meditation is addressing the anger. And then you're not believing the teachings. You're learning, reflecting, and practicing. And that's what's helping you to acquire wisdom and cultivate the wisdom of how to eliminate craving and anger, for example. And then in certain situations, some people might have sexual cravings that they're looking to eliminate if someone has multiple partners and now they're understanding they need to bring that down to one partner and that's what would be wise for them in terms of practicing the five precepts ensuring that they're not causing harm and that's what they would like to do you might need to use this meditation to gradually eliminate sexual cravings and bring that down and temper it to the point where you can be content and peaceful with just one partner and that might be what you use this meditation for. And then there's other people who might be with one partner, and you and or that partner have decided that, okay, we're going to now, you know, make our way from the first or second stage of enlightenment. We've you know, been in that stage for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, what have you, you're at a point in your life where maybe you've had enough sexual interaction and you now would like to fully eradicate sexual cravings from the mind, you can use this meditation that I'm going to share with you to be able to accomplish that. And then there's the meditation to realize non-self. As you're experiencing the jhanas, which are the four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it experiences the first stage of enlightenment, you can work towards eradicating the self that the mind mistakenly believes is there and use this meditation to actually help you. Initially, you're going to be working to put together and understand the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing your meditation practice and all these other things. And as this is starting to gel and start to come together and you're starting to observe the improvement to the condition of the mind, your life, you're starting to experience the qualities of mind that the Buddha talks about in the jhanas or these preliminary phases then that's the point where you should start looking at perhaps getting guidance on this meditation to realize non-self. And that would be an appropriate time to help you with that. So let's go through and look at some of the words of the Buddha related to meditation and specifically breathing mindfulness meditation. This first little excerpt that I pulled out is a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. He says this in his teachings, the pot is the mind. The stand is your meditation practice. And if your meditation practice is either non-existent or You know, not really consistent, then your stand isn't very strong. It's not very stable. It's not very wide. So it's easy to tip over the pot. It's easy for the mind to become discontent and shaken up if there's not a solid stand there. So developing your meditation practice is to develop this solid stand that the pot can now sit on. And now it's much harder to tip over the pot because there's a nice solid stand but a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. So if you are not developing your meditation practice, that's the reason why your mind is experiencing anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, any kind of displeasure, despair, uncomfortableness, dissatisfaction, all of these feelings and others are because the mind is just not trained. And it's your meditation practice, along with other steps on the Eightfold Path, that is gonna train the mind so that you have this nice stable stand, and now the mind won't tip over and become discontent as you get closer and closer to enlightenment. The Buddha points to breathing mindfulness meditation at multiple points in his teachings in explaining how important this was for his practice to get to enlightenment. Therefore, it's going to be very important for your practice to get to enlightenment as well. Remember, a Buddha is declaring the path to enlightenment. They discovered the path themselves. They are the originator, the discoverer of the path. The Buddha explains this in his teachings that he discovered this path and that he's explaining through his 45 years of teaching of what it took for him to get to enlightenment, so that then others who are interested in experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy will know how to do that. So he's explaining breathing mindfulness meditation as being a very important aspect of his practice that led to enlightenment. So therefore, you're going to find that it's very important for your practice as well. It's titled Mindfulness of Breathing Leads Exclusively to Enlightenment. Monks, There is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing or breathing mindfulness meditation. That is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So, here the Buddha is pointing to breathing mindfulness meditation as being very, very important. He's not saying that's all you need to get to enlightenment, he's just saying how important it is. And notice that he uses this term direct knowledge or experience. That's the practice. You need to practice and get that experience of seeing for yourself that breathing mindfulness meditation eliminates craving desire attachment it arises this mindfulness and concentration and it's improving the condition of the mind breathing mindfulness meditation the buddha explains as i just shared that it leads exclusively to liberation to freedom from strong feelings to elimination to peace to direct knowledge to enlightenment, to nirvana. So the way that you do this is you focus on the breath. You focus on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose over the skin. The breath is the central focus. This is the single object during breathing mindfulness meditation that you work to keep the mind focused on. But the mind is gonna move off. And as it does, you just become aware of that sooner and sooner and sooner and you make it more and more easy to cut it off and let it go. Initially, when you first start practicing, you mind might be wondering for three minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm meditating. What am I doing? Get back over here, bring the mind over. And then you're focused on the breath for however long, and then the mind goes away again, and it might be a while before you notice that it's gone. That's completely normal. But as you develop your practice more and more over a consistent long-term period, with this mindfulness or awareness of mind, you become aware sooner and sooner that the mind is moved off the breath so that then you can cut it off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath. The goal isn't to eliminate your thoughts. You're not going to ever be able to do that as long as this body and this mind is together. But what you're trying to do in meditation is observe that the mind's off the breath sooner and sooner and more and more easily let go. And that's going to take quite a while. Remember, it took you many many years to learn how to read, write, and understand the English language. Even now, or whatever age you are, there's probably still words that you're learning. There's probably still grammar that you're learning after all these years, you're still learning the English language, for example. You haven't mastered the English language necessarily. So oftentimes there's this expectation or this pressure you put on yourself to master meditation in the first day or the first week or the first month. That's not the way this works. There needs to be patience where you're gradually learning and you realize that you're gradually evolving your practice. So it's going to take time. So as you gradually train and you gradually practice you'll see this gradual progress where the mind will come into the present moment being able to focus on the breath more and more and you'll develop right mindfulness or awareness of mind ultimately the four foundations of mindfulness which i've talked about in other classes and then there's this development of right concentration or singleness of mind and the mind can be trained to let go of thoughts eliminating craving, desire, attachment. Miranda is gonna be teaching a class on this on Wednesday in Zoom. It's a Zoom-only class, so you're welcome to join that and learn, and I've taught this in other classes as well. But this is essentially how you would do breathing mindfulness meditation. What questions do you guys have on this style of meditation? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like.
2: Uh, it does not appear. Oh, oh, Rick raised his hand. Let's
4: go to him for his questions, sir. Thank you, Miranda, and thank you, Teacher David. I just wanted to clarify. Um, it sounds like breathing mindfulness meditation is the most important, um, and yet we also learned that there are three other forms that at least the Buddha taught and that you you also teach, which are loving kindness meditation, um, the um, I don't remember if you said the disgustingness of the body, but the unpleasant aspects of the body for sexual craving and the, um, the uh, meditation that deals with impermanence and non-self. Are these considered four separate meditations or do they build upon one another?
1: There are four separate meditations that you do separately. Breathing mindfulness meditation is a standalone meditation that you do. The way that I teach loving-kindness meditation is you do some breathing mindfulness meditation leading into loving-kindness and coming out, but those are separate aspects of meditation, and you see it as very separate things because you're working to accomplish very different things in each type of meditation. But as you're first learning, I suggest people to learn breathing mindfulness meditation for at least 4 weeks. That work on that first before they start doing something like loving kindness meditation. And then once you've got your breathing mindfulness meditation practice pretty well developed minimum of 4 weeks maybe longer then you can start developing your loving kindness meditation the way I'm going to share with you and then once you develop that for a while then if you need those other specialized meditations you might reach out after 3 months or so to a teacher to help you develop the other parts of your practice because initially you're going to be active in developing all aspects of the whole path and that's going to take a while to do that meditation is part of that but typically people aren't jumping right in to eliminate sexual cravings or eradicate the self or realize non-self very early in their practice. You need to first develop breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation before you have what you need to move into the others.
4: You used the word specialized for the last two meditations. If somebody was Going along the path for an extended period of time, really got deep into the practice. <laughs> would they, uh, poss- Would they most likely be doing the two specialized meditations, or are they actually specialized for specific people in specific situations? In other words, if I if I've been just a student, whether I had problems with sexual craving or not, and I've been studying with you for five, ten years, and I'm really getting deep into the practice, would it still be? Recommended that I am familiar and utilize these other two meditations.
1: I think it's helpful to know the meditations, to practice them, particularly if someone's planning to be a teacher, because they're going to need to share these meditations with their students at different times. But as an individual practitioner who maybe isn't interested in teaching, who isn't interested in sharing these teachings with anyone, they're just interested in getting to enlightenment for themselves, they may not need to know those other specialized meditations. It wouldn't hurt to understand them, particularly if you've got everything else pretty well sorted in your practice and you're like, all right, well, what else is there to learn? And you know, you haven't yet learned those two specialized meditations, then sure, you know, go ahead and get into it and, and learn them because it's not going to hurt you to learn them. And it can only help deepen your wisdom around the path to enlightenment. Thank you. David. You're welcome.
2: Uh, Tony has his hand raised, so let's go to him for his questions, sir.
0: Can you hear me okay, Teacher David? Sure can. Oh, okay, good. I just had a little technical difficulty. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, uh, you know, just wondering about opening uh, my eyes when I'm meditating. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, the, uh, the teaching is to keep the eyes closed, but to, uh, to open your eyes a little bit or open your eyes. What are your thoughts on that, sir?
1: Yeah, I, of course, have my eyes open during walking meditation and also the one on sexual craving as well. The way that I teach it is with the eyes open. But with breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, and the meditation to realize non-self, I have the eyes closed because it really helps to go internal and really look inward. Whereas if you have the eyes open and there's lights or there's movement or things like this, the mind has a tendency to move off towards those other things so i like to have the eyes closed allowing me to go deeper internal into the mind looking inward of course there's some people who might choose to do this with their eyes open you can develop it in both ways Um, i wouldn't necessarily say that somebody shouldn't use it with their eyes closed or with their eyes open but i've found that having the eyes closed allows me to go deeper into the mind and really focus on the things that I need to focus on. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
2: On Zoom, Lindsay Reiner asks, is it acceptable to also focus on the movement of air into the chest and lungs, sir?
1: Some people choose to focus on the abdomen and things like this. I've always focused on the breath and found that that's the best way. That's what the Buddha teaches as well, that to focus on the breath, the sound of the breath. The breath is right now. Oftentimes, The mind wants to be somewhere else and even being on the abdomen or the chest, that's somewhere else. Whereas if you can just focus everything right here where it needs to be, focus on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose, this really keeps it focused and concentrated on a single object. Um, That's what I found works best. The Buddha describes this in his teachings to focus on the breath. And you'll find, I feel, the best progress if you focus on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose over the skin. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.
2: Uh, It does not appear we have any more questions at this time.
1: Yeah. Something I'll share before I move on based on some of the questions that were just asked is... There are certain things that people may have been practicing in the past, and now things that I'm sharing are perhaps different than what you've been practicing in the past. And to me, that's a very good thing. If you're studying with a teacher that is just teaching the same things that you already know, then you have no use for this teacher because they're teaching you all the same things you already know. If your mind is currently unenlightened and you're experiencing discontentedness, then you know certain things that you currently are doing in your practice aren't 100% the truth. You haven't acquired what the Buddha calls final knowledge this is someone who's attained enlightenment will have final knowledge they will understand kind of the finality of what it takes to actually get to enlightenment so there are certain things in your practice if you're not enlightened that you're going to have to get rid of and let go of and then there's certain things that you're going to need to bring into your practice to evolve your practice and develop your practice further so if you're studying with a teacher that is sharing things with you that is different than what you currently understand that's a very good thing you're just going to need to get to a point where you're willing to let go of certain things that you've been doing in the past. Try these new things that you haven't heard of before that you maybe haven't tried before. Do those for a consistent long-term period of time and see that it improves the condition of the mind and your practice. Whereas if we just hold on to things that we've done in the past and the mind is unwilling to try new things, then it's not going to be able to experience the progress and improvement that it could experience. So if you're used to meditating with your eyes open and you've never really tried it with your eyes closed, Do it with your eyes closed for a consistent long-term period, not just once or twice, but for several weeks and see what the improvement is. Whereas if you're used to the breathing on your chest or your abdomen and that's what you're used to doing, then choose to let that go and just focus on the sound of the breath for a consistent long-term period of time and see the improvement for yourself. If you're used to listening to music or having candles or different things like this in your practice, Letting that stuff go and just focusing on the body, the mind, and the breath. Those are the only three things that you need during your meditation practice. So if we continue to hold on to these things from the past and we're unwilling to let go of them when we hear new things, then the mind can't evolve and progress. Because remember, the mind has craving or clinging. The unenlightened mind doesn't want to let go. It doesn't like impermanence. So certain things in our meditation practice, the mind is going to want to hold on to, and it's not going to want to let go and if your teacher is sharing with you okay let go of music the mind when you first start the first two three four five sessions that you're not meditating with music the mind's not going to like this or if you're used to having your eyes open or focused on a different part of the body with the breath your mind's not going to like it the first few sessions that you try to now introduce this impermanence the mind's not going to like it so if you just stay holding on to the things from the past, then you can't get to this new understanding and see that these things that the Buddha taught actually work better for you perhaps. So just keep that in mind as you're evolving your meditation practice that it needs to evolve, it needs to change, it needs to have impermanence. If you just stay stuck with the things that you have now and you aren't willing to adjust and improve, then the mind can't ever experience new wisdom to experience new progress in your practice. So keep that in mind as you or learning new things and things that i'm sharing with you that you may not have learned in the past let's now talk about loving kindness meditation these are some more of the words of the buddha around loving kindness meditation is he shares develop meditation on loving kindness for when you develop meditation on loving kindness any ill will will be abandoned so this is the way a buddha speaks very clear, very precise, very concise, right? He's not going to give you all these kind of random stories that you need to interpret and kind of figure out what is it that he really means, because then his teachings are open to interpretation, and you may interpret them in a way that he didn't mean them. So with a Buddha's mind being fully, perfectly enlightened, they're not interested in fame or fortune. They're not interested in looking so smart. And Buddha has already eradicated the ego and any kind of arrogance or pride. They are experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. And they're just interested in making their teachings as accessible to everybody as possible. So they're gonna speak in a very straightforward, very common way. So that's what you're seeing here when he says develop meditation on loving kindness for when you develop meditation on loving kindness any ill will will be abandoned very simple very straightforward so the next question becomes well how do you do loving kindness meditation loving kindness meditation is taught in the world in many different ways the teachings of what the buddha actually taught as loving kindness meditation aren't in the original source teachings. Whatever he taught during his lifetime didn't make it until today, 2,500 years later. So we see that he did teach loving kindness meditation and it's important and he describes it right here and in other places about why it's important and what it actually does, but how he actually did loving kindness meditation isn't in the original source teachings of the Pali Canon. So what you do is you learn from a teacher who you feel has eradicated anger, hatred, ill will, and all these lesser versions. And you feel that, okay, this person has eradicated ill will from the mind. So whatever they're doing as loving kindness meditation must have worked. So by learning with somebody like that, then you can have confidence in what they're teaching is potentially the truth. But then you're not interested in believing what they share, you learn it, you reflect on it, and you practice it and see the truth for yourself. So the way that I teach loving kindness meditation is that you start with moving from chanting to breathing mindfulness meditation, and then you go into loving kindness meditation where on the out breath, you repeat these affirmations of may I be peaceful, on the out-breath. And then you take in a nice gradual breath in through the nose, and then on the out-breath, may I be safe. And then you take a nice gradual breath in again, and then once again on the out-breath, may I be well. And on the out-breath, may I be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. You always start with I, because it's very difficult, near impossible, to have loving-kindness for others if you don't have loving kindness for yourself. You can't have loving kindness for all beings if you don't have loving kindness for this being that you are right now. So you start with I and then you go through these successive rings based on your relationships, based on difficulties, based on challenges and struggles, people who you currently have hatred or anger for. Here, what you're seeing is just a very simple, may we be peaceful, right? May we be safe, may we be well, may we be free of all discontentedness and the suffering it causes. You can use that, but you would like to say, you know, may mom be peaceful, may dad be peaceful, may my family, may my co workers, may my friends, may Barbara. Right? If you have difficulties with Barbara in accounting, you know, use that, put Barbara in your meditation. You might need to do that for several weeks before your mind releases any kind of anger, or hatred or ill will for Barbara. Keep in mind that as you structure this meditation, it should start with I, and then it should end with all beings, where you haven't left anybody out, but you're all inclusive in the way that you're doing your meditation. And also keep in mind that this meditation is to change your mind. You're not trying to change Barbara in accounting. That's not how your mind's going to get to peacefulness. The way that your mind's going to get to peacefulness, you've got to improve the condition of your mind. So when you're saying, may Barbara be peaceful, may Barbara be safe, may Barbara be well, may Barbara be free of discontent and the suffering it causes. By you doing that repeatedly over multiple training sessions, now when you interact with Barbara at work, your mind's going to have more loving kindness. You're going to have more of this genuine interest in seeing Barbara be well. So now your intention, speech, and actions when you're interacting with Barbara are going to emanate from this loving kindness or this active goodwill. And it's not gonna be the first time you interact with Barbara, it's not gonna be the second. But as you interact more and more and more through this loving kindness, you will gradually see that your inner relationship with Barbara and your outward relationship with Barbara is going to evolve and it's going to improve. But it's gotta start with you developing that for yourself. You're not trying to change other people. It's not possible to change other people through your meditation. If it was possible to change other people through our meditation, There would be no such thing as prisons there would be no such thing as criminals or harmful things that happen in the world there would be no murders there would be no rapes because we could just meditate and those things would be completely changed in the world so it's not possible for us to change other people in our meditation but by changing our own mind and transforming our own mind away from anger hatred ill will in those lesser versions, now when we interact with these people, we will function in more loving and kind ways. So you would like to include in your meditation, people that you have difficulties with. When I first started this meditation, I did, may I be peaceful, may I be safe my, for myself. I did that two, three, four, five times because I had this inner hate, this negative self dialogue, this inner dialogue within the you know, my own mind that, I found it very difficult to have loving kindness toward this being David, so I would just do multiple iterations of may I be peaceful, and may I be safe, may I be well, may I be free of discontentedness and the suffering it causes. And then I did it again and again and again. And then finally I'd get to may all beings, right? And I did that for quite an extended period of time. And then I started including people that I had difficulties with. At one time I had a lot of difficulties with my mom. So she was in there for a good six months before I started observing my interactions with her were improving. And then at that point in time, when I first started, I was in business. So I might have had a challenge with an employee or a customer or the landlord at different times. The landlord of our business would come in and be hostile and aggressive towards me. And then I would include him in the meditation. So then when I would interact with him, I would function differently. So you're going to need to have a, a fluid changing, impermanent meditation with loving kindness, where these rings are going to be structured based on what's going on in your life. And again, this is something we do on Wednesdays so that you can get a different flavor each Wednesday of how we do these different meditations so Miranda did one this past Wednesday and then she'll be doing one in the future and then I'll be doing them as well where you can be learning breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation and getting a feeling of how to do that and then developing that in your own practice more and more and also asking questions as you need help so what questions do you guys have on loving kindness meditation
2: Uh, Jan has her hand raised let's go to her for another question
3: sir thank you Miranda thank you teacher David Uh, teacher David I wonder about um, adding some other um, sorts of phrases Um, for example um, replacing may I be safe or may I be well or adding to these phrases Um, I don't have any specific examples but Have you ever used any other phrases or only these four phrases?
1: You can use any
3: thoughts you have about that. Thank
1: you. Sure. You can use other phrases, but what you would like to do is have what's called a non-burdening phrase. Even though we're not changing other people, you would like to create a phrase where you're not requiring other people to do something. So if I say, may mom be kind right that requires her to do something she has to change her speech and her actions towards me in order for her to be kind and now i'm requiring her to do something as if i'm trying to change her where what you're really trying to do is you're trying to improve the condition of your own mind so you can use other phrases here that are non-burdening so if you think about the phrases that i use here, they're not burdening anybody with anything. So if I say, may mom be peaceful, may mom be safe, may mom be well, may mom be free of all discontentness and the suffering it causes, it's not burdening her to do anything, even though you can't do that anyway. I'm not in my own mind requiring her to do something before I have loving kindness and compassion for her. I'm just cultivating this active goodwill this genuine interest in seeing her be well. So if you're gonna adjust the phrases, be sure that it's non-burdening and that it's helping you to cultivate this genuine interest in seeing these beings be well and be peaceful and and have this genuine interest in seeing them be well.
3: Thank you, Teacher David. I guess I do have an example. Um, Would it be, for example, beneficial or not to think, uh, may I cause no harm in the world?
1: may i cause no harm this requires you to do something right Mm -hmm. so there are other phrases that i've used before i'm not recalling what they are right now but there are other phrases that i've used these are the four that worked the best so that's why i teach these but there are other phrases that you can use if you would like to come up with those and you're always welcome to you know ask questions in the classes or post in the facebook group or send a private message or have personal guidance and i can help you with those but yeah you can definitely customize this just you'd like to come up with non-burdening phrases
2: thank you teacher you're welcome um on zoom max goldberg max goldberg asks what about may you be calm sir
1: that also requires something you know to do in terms of that person would have to actively do something to be calm
2: Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. If someone is having a difficulty with a person and they are about to go into a room and interact with that person, Mm -hmm. could there be a quick three to five-minute top-up session where we don't have to start with, may I be peaceful, safe, well, free, discontentedness, and just simply focus on, may this person be safe, be well, be peaceful, be free of discontentedness, to even just temporarily arise that loving kindness in the mind for that person that we're about to interact with, sir.
1: Absolutely. You know, if you're interacting with like an ex spouse regularly or you're getting ready to go in and sign some divorce papers or something like this, you know, prior to the ex spouse coming to your house to pick up the children, if you're having difficulties with them or prior to going in to sign these divorce papers, perhaps that might be something you would like to do. Of course, if you're having difficulties with these people and challenged in your life, you would like them to be in your regular meditations, but also you can kind of top up the mind as well. Because even if there's people that have been in your life 5, 10, 20 years ago, if the mind's still harboring anger, hatred, or ill will towards them, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment because there's still that anger and hostility in there, in the mind. So even if you're never going to see these people ever again, you're going to need to include them in your meditation. But if there are current people in your life, that you're going to be seeing or or seeing regularly. You would like to include them in your meditation. And you can do those top-up meditations that you're talking about there, Miranda. And then also with Max and Jan, I, I thought of one taking something Jan said. You can say, you know, may you be free of harm. Instead of, may I not cause harm, you can say, may my neighbor be free of harm, right? This is like cultivating that genuine interest in seeing them be well. That would be a way to take that same sentiment and adjusting it.
2: Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Brudina has her hand raised, so let's go to her for her question, sir. Hi, teacher David, so nice to see you again.
5: Hi. And Todd says, hello, I don't know if you
1: can. Yes, I heard Todd welcome guys
5: okay nice to see you um so my question was a little bit during the loving kindness meditation you mentioned like one of the parts is may may let's say my mom be safe or someone else be safe my problem i have in there let's say when as you are doing the meditation and you were saying may mom be safe let's say like automatically you might think that you're concerned that they're not safe. Let's say they're traveling somewhere and whatever you're concerned with their well-being as they're traveling. But, And you state that, then your mind kind of goes off into whatever, because now now you have more of a concerning than, so you're bothered in (coughs) a way during a meditation of them being. So how do you handle that? I guess to cut it off or how do you handle that part if you were to, now the safe turns into concern more than just, You understand
1: what I mean? I understand. Yeah, there's no problems with having concerns. It's when the mind's worried that it's shaken up and discontent. So, for example, like now we're in New York. If my son walks out on the street, if the mind was worried about him getting hit by a car, now it's discontent. I'm overprotective. I'm grabbing him anytime he even looks towards the street to cross where when there's a concern this is more of the middle way so if we're on a really super busy street I might reach out and hold his hand as we cross I'm not worried about him getting hurt or getting hit but I have a concern I would like to see him be well and be safe so you can practice concern in the middle way and that would be the middle way but when the mind is worried that's where it now is shaken up and unwell
2: Thank
5: you. So if it's worried and unwell, what do you do in that uh, situation?
1: Yeah, that's where when you're practicing the Eightfold Path, you have that mindfulness or awareness of mind. You see the mind is worried. Now you cut that off and let it go, realizing that it's your own craving, that I'm craving for my son to be safe when he's walking down the street i'm yearning i'm longing for it where now the mind can't be calm and content so where you see the mind is doing that you restrain the mind you pull it back you cut it off and let it go and bring the mind to the middle and say let me just make some wise decisions to ensure he is safe but i don't have to long and yearn for it but i'm also not going to be indifferent and just be like yeah kid walk walk wherever you want to walk. Who cares? Right. You know, that would be the other side. So you're looking for that middle way where you're maybe as we're walking down the sidewalk, I'm like, Bailan, look, there's all these cars, you know, it's not the same. Like in Thailand, you know, you're going to have to be a little bit more aware as you're walking. And he's like, yeah, I see that dad. I'm like, all right, good. I'm glad you see that. You know, let me, let me hold your hand. If you know, when we get to a busy street, are you okay with that? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine with that. So then, you know, kind of help him with that. But there's not this longing and this yearning. There's not like, hey, get back here. What are you doing? Why are you so close to the sidewalk? You know, don't stand so close to the curb. You know, there's not that kind of thing going on where if there was craving, desire, attachment, there would be. So the goal would be to cut it off and let it go but you also have to realize that early in practice like you and todd are first developing these teachings you're not going to be able to easily do that you're going to potentially see cravings you're going to see desires attachments these mental longings that the mind wants the objects of its affection and you're trying to cut it off but you just can't because the mind isn't well trained enough so that's why once you get accumulated enough breathing mindfulness meditation sessions, you know, six months, a year into this, that's where it gets easier and easier for you to cut off and let go. So that's that right effort. So when you have the mindfulness and you're aware of the craving, desire attachments, then you can apply the right effort to actually cut it off and let it go. And it will get easier to do that as you develop breathing mindfulness meditation more.
3: Thank you. Hmm.
1: I also, you're welcome. I also thought about another one for Max where the Max was saying, you know, may you be calm, right? You can say something like, may you not struggle or may you, may you not have difficulties, right? Or uh, instead of saying, may you be calm, that's requiring somebody to do something. But when you say, may you not struggle, may you not have difficulties, may, may I be safe um, is similar to, you know may you not uh, experience harm or may you not may you be free of harm you know those kind of things um, so these are non-burdening things where you're just having this genuine interest in seeing others be well that's what loving kindness is all about
2: um rick has his hand raised. let's go to him for his questions sir
4: teacher david hi um I, I know people who have practiced or started to practice loving kindness meditation who have experienced severe trauma in their lives. And when they got to the part in the ring where um, they send loving kindness to somebody that may have harmed them in the past, they become flooded with, with really unpleasant emotions and it, it really makes it hard for them to continue with the meditation. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions or feedback on that.
1: Yeah, this is actually part of the healing process that what we do when we experience certain traumas, you know, we put the dust under the carpet and we keep putting the dust under the carpet and then eventually it just builds up and builds up and builds up. And then when we do loving kindness meditation, it's like pulling the carpet back and all the dust is flying around in the room and it feels uncomfortable but you've got to go through that in order to clear it out of the mind. So if somebody is experiencing the shaking up of the mind due to cultivating loving kindness for someone who's created harm towards them in the past, while that difficulty may bubble up in the mind, the anger is bubbling up in the mind, they ultimately have to wipe that clean and get rid of that and That's what the loving-kindness meditation is there for. That's also what the breathing mindfulness meditation is there for at the end of loving-kindness meditation to help train the mind to cut that off and let it go. So as I used to meditate for loving-kindness and cultivating this for my mom over that six-month period... I would start the meditation being just fine but in the meditation i would sometimes get very angry and very hostile because i would remember things that happened in the past as a child and i wasn't thinking about those things before the meditation but during the meditation it rose those things up we oftentimes see that as a problem and we try to you know kind of push down those feelings. And that's just putting it back under the carpet. And then the feelings aren't really dealt with. The mind hasn't really been purified and clear out this anger, this hostility, this aggression towards an individual. So the bubbling up of the anger and hostility isn't a problem. The problem is pushing it back down and covering it up with a carpet. So as it bubbles up, you're just trying to clear it out and clear it out and clear it out. And it's going to take multiple sessions for that to occur. And then ensuring that you have breathing mindfulness at the end to kind of bring the mind back to some clarity and eliminate any anger and hatred before the meditation is done is really helpful. But there's still going to be situations where even at the end of the meditation, their mind is still angry or upset or maybe even tearful or sorryful based on the things that have happened in the past but that's part of going through this to be able to process the feelings properly and get them out of the mind the reason why the mind is holding on to these is because of its craving and its clinging but that's going to continue to cause the problems as long as it's buried deep inside the mind so as the feelings are bubbled up and you clear them out, that's an actual solution. Where in the past, we've just pushed them down and been holding on to them. That's the problem. So as you bubble up the feelings and you see this anger and hostility coming up in the mind, just know that that's part of the healing process. And now you'd like to clear it out and process them properly so that they don't continue to get buried and just know that it's a continuous process. It's going to take a while for that to occur. You kind of have to walk through the fire in order to get to the other side and appreciate the fresh air on the other side. So sometimes we have to walk through that fire and experience that in order to appreciate the fresh air on the other side. And that's what it's like sometimes as these feelings are bubbling up, it's like walking through the fire. But then you can get to safety on the other side and really appreciate the fresh air it's just going to take time for the mind to gradually let it go
4: so i uh, i work with people that have severe trauma and i also work with people <coughs> who um, are in early recovery from addiction maybe they belong to a 12-step program or some kind of recovery program and um for instance there's a buddhist recovery program that i um, associated with and what if somebody is coming in They've been practicing some breathing mindfulness meditation for a while. They're just learning how to do loving kindness. And we get to that part where there's somebody that may have caused them harm. And they're just, it's just too early in their recovery for them to be handling that. Is there a gradual process for to help them to get to that point?
1: Yeah, they can back off. They don't necessarily have to address the real deep-rooted anger and hostility right from the beginning. They could just learn loving-kindness meditation by cultivating loving-kindness for themselves and maybe people that they already have loving-kindness for and then ultimately going to all beings. So if they've got someone... You know, deep in their past that has caused a lot of trauma, there's no need to tackle that right at the beginning. You know, so if you understand it's a life practice and it's going to take time of gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, then you know that you don't have to tackle everything all at one time or early on. So I would work with them and help them get more stable before they choose for themselves that it's the right time to tackle this. Because we, as teachers or therapists, we shouldn't tell somebody when it's the right time to address these things, but they will know for themselves and they will see the improvement to the condition of their mind becoming more stable. And when they've got the more support around them and they've got more teachings on board, then they'll know how to deal with these uncomfortable feelings as they're arising. And that would be a better appropriate time to address something like that.
4: Thank
1: you, teacher Amen.
2: You're welcome. It does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So let's talk about the meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. This particular picture might be challenging for some of you guys to see. So just a heads up that if you need to look away or blank your screen, feel free to do that. But this is part of this particular meditation. The Buddha describes developing the perception of unattractiveness in order to abandon lust and during his lifetime they did what's called the 32-part body meditation where they basically looked at each individual part of the body and meditated on that like the hair the teeth the skin the sinews, the bones the different organs and they would visualize those things and then meditate on them one of the things that we can do today because we have imagery is that we can actually look at an image of a dissected corpse. And this can help us to be able to kind of imprint in the mind this unattractiveness of the human body. Because if somebody was cut open, you probably wouldn't be interested in having sex with this being because, you know, it just looks unattractive. And that's what you're trying to create in the mind in order to get to this point where you can either reduce or or eliminate your sexual cravings because we look at the physical body as being attractive because of all the things we do to it to make it attractive, right? We do all these things with our hair, with our jewelry, with our makeup, with perfume, with cologne, with clothing, with the way we might stand or other things like this because we're interested in attracting someone. But you get rid of all that stuff, you know, if you peeled off the skin of your partner, you probably wouldn't be interested in having sex with that individual. So when you're ready, when you feel like you would like to either reduce your sexual cravings down to one person, or you would like to completely get rid of sexual interactions altogether, at whatever point in time that you do that, you might choose to use this particular meditation where you meditate with your eyes open looking at an actual dead corpse or a dissected corpse and you breathe in and out through the the nose just like you would with breathing mindfulness meditation but you're staring at this body and imprinting into the mind the unattractiveness of the body some people do this with an actual corpse you can go to places where there's access to an actual dead corpse like in temples in Thailand, they will have places where a dead body might be and kind of waiting to be cremated. And even here in America, there's places that you can pay to go to what's called an anatomy lab where students will study the anatomy of the human body. And you can actually see the human body in different stages of dissection and autopsy and things like this. And this can really help you to see the body as it truly is, without the perfume, without the jewelry, without the makeup, without the hair, without the clothes and all the other things that we do, in order to beautify the body, you can see it more in its pure form. And then this will help you to imprint into the mind that the unattractiveness of the body in order to abandon sexual cravings. And then this other meditation to realize non-self This is very similar to loving-kindness meditation, but you're doing different affirmations in the mind. So the Buddha explains, the perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit, I am. Well, you need to be able to now do these affirmations to realize that I am not the body, I am not the mind, there is no self, I do not exist. There's a physical body, there's a mind, this physical body exists but there's no I here. This label David that was given to me at birth, that's just to make it easy for people to refer to this being that we call David. I am not the body. I am not the mind. There is no self. I do not exist, meaning there is no permanent self here. So as you understand the universal truth of non-self, as you understand the fetter of personal existence view, which requires reading, talking to your teacher a few times, eventually you get to the point where you think about it enough and you start to gradually realize, yes, this is actually true. You might need this meditation to kind of help you further cement in the mind that I am not the body, I am not the mind, there is no self. I do not exist. I am not the body. I am not the mind. There is no self. I do not exist. And you do this repeatedly over and over, just like you would loving kindness meditation on the out breath, and you repeat these affirmations over and over in the mind. This is what will help you to get to the point of realization of non self. But again, this is only approached later in your practice. You would like to get. The eightfold path really well developed. You'd like to get breathing mindfulness meditation well developed. Loving kindness meditation well developed. Start seeing the jhanas or at least glimpses of the jhanas and seeing the improvement to the condition of the mind. And then that's where you might decide to focus in on something like this. And it's probably going to be prefaced with like i mentioned some reading because in volume 1 and some of the other volumes i've got some teachings there about the universal truth of non-self it's going to require talking with your teacher questioning asking questions reflecting thinking about this over multiple sessions and then eventually you might get to the point where you decide to use this meditation to aid you in training the mind that there is no self that there is no self that You can eradicate the mind's false belief or misperception that there is a self. And this will help the mind to get some more peacefulness because as long as you think that this body is who you are, when this body starts changing, or if somebody says something agreeable or disagreeable about the physical body the mind's going to be shaken up and experience discontentedness if you think that this mind is who you are like i am a police officer or i am an american as soon as you hear somebody say something agreeable or disagreeable about these things that you're holding on to the mind is who you think you are your mind's going to be shaken up with discontentedness so by you training the mind that I perform this role as a police officer or I perform this role as a doctor or a lawyer this physical body was born in a certain country then you don't necessarily take on that self-image and self-identity as this is who you are as a person that when you hear this agreeable or disagreeable speech about these various things your mind isn't shaken up by it so this meditation can help you to do that but there's a lot of work ahead of time that you need to do before this meditation will really be successful for you so what questions do you guys have on anything that i've shared here
2: um yes sir on facebook first Benko asked aside from seeing colors like you describe i also feel the sensation of my head expanding while meditating you've mentioned this in past classes but i sometimes find that that my mind takes its attention off the breath and notices the sensation of the head expanding. Will that sensation eventually subside, sir?
1: Yes. It's impermanent, just like everything else. And this is actually part of what you experience is that sometimes people describe it as like the feeling of an elephant head or like a buffalo head. It's like or a big balloon. This is the mind getting more familiar with the bodily sensations. This is very helpful. The mind starting to develop the four foundations of mindfulness being aware of the bodily sensations that are happening. It's also experiencing the changes in the brain. Your brain and your head isn't literally that big as you know, but there's the sensation that it is that big. So eventually you'll move past that, but you will be better afterwards because you will have tapped into these bodily sensations and the mind will have more awareness of the bodily sensations. And you will observe that the head will feel more stable, more steady. That prior to learning these teachings and practicing this, I used to have a lot of pressure in the skull. I used to get significant migraine headaches to the point of vomiting often. And then as these transformations are happening and you're purifying the mind and the changes are happening to the brain, which you're probably experiencing and you're starting to feel that sensation, then once you get past that, There'll be more stability in the mind, and and the brain will have made some nice shifts and nice changes, which will also bring some better improvements to the physical body as well. So, this is completely normal and you'll experience it and other people will too, but it is impermanent. Just keep meditating. If anything, this is an indication that what you're doing is working and the progress that you're making, things are moving in the right direction. So when people start talking about these kind of things, that's an indication that I know as a teacher that what you're doing is working and things are moving in a positive direction. So just keep doing that. Don't allow any kind of arrogance or conceit to come into the mind because you're making progress, but just know that that's what's occurring. And just keep on doing what you're doing, keep building wisdom, and keep improving your practice. And ultimately, you won't experience that sensation of the head expanding the way that you are now.
2: Yes, thank you, sir.
1: You're welcome.
2: Uh, Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question.
4: Thank you, Miranda. Hi, Teacher David. Um, Question about the lying position, the lying down position. Uh, I believe in your book... The only thing that you said really was about the lying in the back, if I recall correctly. And the problem with lying on my back and trying to meditate is not only might I fall asleep, but also I tend to snore. So I'm not really getting enough oxygen. Um, I have heard that. Some people recommended lying on the side, much like the statues of the Buddha in his final resting position or his final meditation position, um, as being a way to stay awake. And I know for me, it would help with snoring. I was wondering if you would comment on that.
1: I haven't done too much meditation in the side lying position. I do it on the back. There are occasions where I have done some on the side. You can try it and see how it works for you. And if it's working, then wonderful. What you're doing with the mind is exactly the same, whether it's breathing mindfulness meditation or loving kindness meditation or meditation for eliminating sexual cravings or meditation to realize oneself. self. What you are actually doing with the mind is exactly the same. So just with the body, you either be on your back or either side, And you can see how it works for you and then what I always suggest is when you try something new in your meditation practice is that you do it for a week or two or three to see how it's really affecting your practice and if it's really improving because when you first start trying new things in your practice the mind typically revolts it doesn't like it because it's impermanence and the mind's craving permanence so if we just try something once and we're like "Ah, I don't like it I'm not gonna do that anymore you haven't really given it a full try so if If you try something new like that, try it for two or three weeks before you make a decision of whether it's really helping you or improving what you're doing or not.
4: Thank you, teacher David.
1: You're welcome.
2: It does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. Well, this is what I thought I would share here at the end, which is to never give up, is understand that your meditation practice, there's going to be times where things are really peaceful, really serene, very calm in your meditation practice. And there's going to be times where things are kind of shaken up and kind of a struggle and kind of difficult. And if your mind's craving that peacefulness that you experienced previously, When things are kind of adjusting and being shaken up in your meditation practice, you're going to feel like something's wrong or it's not as good as it used to be. Your meditation practice is impermanent, just like everything else. So like me traveling on the road like this, when I was in Arlington for two and a half weeks and I was in one place, I was able to meditate consistently the same way that I was doing when I was in Thailand and I was teaching a retreat there. So I was able to meditate even more because I was meditating with students. But now since I've been to Legoland and Disney World and now New York, you know, my meditation practice is, is bouncing around. You know, I'm kind of not as consistent as I was when I was in Thailand in my normal life and also when I'm teaching. So understand that your meditation practice is going to be impermanent. But I know when I get back to Chiang Mai, I know that I'll be more consistent. I'll have my two or three meditations a day for 30 minutes or more. Or like when I go to Egypt, I'm going to be teaching some more there. So I'll be able to do some more meditation. Your enlightenment is not going to be determined whether you meditate today or not, right? Your enlightenment is going to be determined that over a consistent long-term period, over two years, three years, four years, five years, six years, are you consistently working towards meditating two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more? And if you miss a day or two, what do you do next? Do you give up or Do you just continue to apply effort and energy towards building up your practice? So I suggest that students never, ever give up. You'll go through periods where there'll be struggles, there'll be difficulties, but that's all par for the course. That's normal. And that's why you have a community of other students to reach out to. You can come into Zoom early before classes. You can communicate in the Facebook group. You can reach out to a message some of the other students in our community. You can reach out to me in all the different ways that I share. There's support for you here, but you've got to make the decision to never ever give up because the only other option is to go back to be angry or being hostile or bitter. And that's not a very good option. So if you never give up and you just realize like, okay, you might go a few days without meditating. That's not the end of the world. You know, you just get right back into it. There was a period of time where I went about three, three and a half years without meditating. I don't suggest that for anybody. It was Probably the most horrible time in my entire life, but there was that period of time where that happened, and then eventually I got back into learning and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. So these things can occur. I don't suggest you allow it to become three and a half years or three and a half weeks, but you know, if you have uh, you know two or three sessions per day, and you miss one or two of those occasionally, that's normal right? That's impermanence. But once you do miss those, what do you do? Do you keep going, developing your practice, or do you allow the mind to become complacent? Because the words of the Buddha here, he shares, meditate monks, do not be complacent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So if you haven't been meditating, and you get angry and hostile and bitter, you're gonna regret it later, right? Or if you become bored and lonely, you're gonna regret it later. Or if you feel guilt or shame or fear at different times, you're gonna regret that you weren't doing that work. So definitely build up your practice. Don't take kind of an indifferent approach to it. Like when you do miss meditation, don't become indifferent about it, but also don't crave and desire and yearn and long. Don't rush and hurry up to get home to meditate, right? You're not going to be interested in rushing and hurrying up to go meditate. That's the craving, desire, attachment. You'd like to find that middle way where you're gradually building up your practice, realizing you're going to miss some meditations here and there. And that's all normal. But then just continue to progress don't become complacent and where you can meditate and you can build up your practice do that and in fact i kind of knew that coming on this trip i wouldn't be able to maintain a two or three meditation sessions per day so prior to leaving chiang mai i ramped up my meditation practice and got a whole lot more meditation in and then during those two and a half weeks in arlington when i first started traveling i was getting a whole lot of meditation during that period of time as well because i knew over The period of time when I was taking Bailan to Legoland and Disney World and things like this, that I wouldn't be able to get as much meditation going. So that's where you can kind of compensate for these kind of things and realize that there's this bigger picture of two, three, four, five, six years of developing your life practice. It's not just about what happens today, right? So that's where you can train the mind to not have craving and yearning and also not be indifferent, but choosing to not give up and not be complacent. So I'll just go ahead and open up to any residual remaining questions that you guys might have around meditation or anything else. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand and Zoom and ask any questions that you like.
2: It does not appear we have any more questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. Well, I would like to thank all of you for joining for today's class. I apologize to those of you guys who tune in by live stream that the software wasn't able to allow me to switch the slides. But there's other classes that I've taught that are recorded in YouTube and Facebook that you can see the visual aids if you'd like to use those. I would like to thank those of you guys that ask questions. Thank the moderators for everything that you do to contribute to these classes. I appreciate all your help. in. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing a breathing mindfulness meditation class where Miranda's gonna be teaching that in Zoom. So you can tune in to do that. It's not going to be live streamed, but you can log into Zoom and learn with Miranda. And then next Sunday, we're gonna be in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is craving is the problem. What is the solution? So we're gonna be now diving into some more specific solutions around how to eliminate craving desire attachment from the mind so far in this group learning program you've got breathing mindfulness meditation which is a consistent ongoing practice and we discussed today that's really important to develop various qualities of mind like mindfulness and concentration and eliminating craving desire attachment that's very important and i've also taught generosity as part of eliminating craving desire attachment being willing to give and share without any expectation of anything in return we're now in chapter 12 and 13 i'm going to go into some other aspects. Of things that you can do to eliminate craving, and desire attachment from the mind so we'll be starting that next sunday with chapter 12 and then we'll be in chapter 13 the sunday after that so thank you all for joining for today's class have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day we'll see you in a future class take care Sawadika. thank you for listening
0: to this podcast